Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Chris Licht is out as CEO at CNN. The humanitarian scope of the Ukraine dam break worsens. Funding for Atlanta's Cop City is approved. South Korea and Japan scramble jets during a China-Russia air patrol. Canada rules an incel attack as terrorism. A panel says a Florida judge should be reprimanded over the Parkland shooting. Merck challenges the U.S. government's power to negotiate drug prices. A study says Instagram's algorithms boost pedophile networks. A lawsuit claims China spied on Hong Kong activists through TikTok. And New York City sues Hyundai and Kia over easy-to-steal cars. Our top story, CNN's Chris Licht is out as CEO. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Fox News, NBC News, The Guardian, CNN, and CNBC. CNN CEO Chris Licht's tenure with the news network has ended after just over a year with the company. David Zaslav, the CEO of parent company Warner Brothers Discovery, announced in a memo to CNN staff Wednesday morning. Licht had been under scrutiny for his handling of the network in flux, notably his mission to make CNN more moderate in its coverage. Backlash severely ramped up from liberal outlets after CNN hosted a town hall for former President Donald Trump in May. A 15,000-word article published in The Atlantic on Friday titled Inside the Meltdown at CNN is believed to be the final blow to Licht's run as CNN's CEO. The piece quoted several network employees critical of his leadership. Licht apologized to employees Monday in light of the article, which also claimed that Licht was critical of his predecessor, Jeff Zucker, and the network's coverage of Trump. Licht took over for Zucker in May 2022, and his time as CEO has been characterized as tumultuous, plagued by layoffs, dwindling profits, plummeting ratings, the firing of two prominent hosts, and an overall lack of employee morale. In his memo, Zaslav maintained that he has enormous respect for Licht and took responsibility for the failed relationship. Zaslav didn't name a replacement, but said that executives Amy Intellis, Virginia Mosley, Eric Sherling, and David Levy would run CNN in the interim. Thank you, Scott. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Scott just laid out the facts of that story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a left narrative provided by The Atlantic. Chris Licht failed as CEO of CNN because he completely misdiagnosed the landscape of American media and tried to make CNN into a centrist outlet unwilling to oppose Donald Trump's lies. Licht was also completely oblivious to the workplace environment he created. In over his head and unwilling to make changes, Licht's demise came from his inability to understand both his employees and the American public. And Breitbart brings us the right narrative spin. Left-wing media is trying to scapegoat Chris Licht for CNN's failure, which has been happening since Donald Trump exposed the network as fake news back in 2015. CNN and nearly all other mainstream outlets have lied about Trump and his supporters for years, and that's why no one trusts them. Licht certainly doesn't deserve any sympathy, but blaming him for CNN's problems is disingenuous. You know, the weird thing about that is the kind of person who would enjoy a reporter following them around for two weeks is just the kind of person who would be exposed for having someone follow them around for two weeks, most likely, I feel like. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Tens of thousands are at risk amid a southern Ukrainian flood. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NBC, TASS, Ukraine Forum, and Guardian. Following the collapse of the Novokokovka Dam in Ukraine's Kherson region on Tuesday, government officials from Ukraine and Russia said that tens of thousands of people are at risk as floods continue to sweep through communities on both sides of the Dnipro River on Wednesday. Russian troops occupied the whole of the Kherson region at the onset of the war, but withdrew from positions on the western bank of the river in November. The river now serves as the dividing line between Russia and Ukrainian control over Kherson and Ukraine south. On the western bank, Ukrainian officials said 16,000 people lived in the most critically affected areas, adding that National Guard teams and emergency crews were working to evacuate those who hadn't yet gotten out. Meanwhile, Russia's appointment governor of the Kherson region, Vladimir Saldo, said 22 to 40,000 people were living in now flood-hit zones on the eastern bank. Saldo added seven people were reported missing at this stage. As things stand, there were no reports of flooding-related deaths on either side. Oleksandr Tolokonikov, a spokesman for Ukraine's military administration in Kherson, said that water levels are expected to rise another meter on Wednesday before they begin to fall. Flooding is nonetheless expected to persist for several more days before it subsides. The long-term damage is predicted to be substantial, with thousands of homes and businesses expected to be washed away. Flora and fauna may be wiped out for decades, and explosive mines planted by both armies will be randomly distributed among the flood-hit towns. The local agriculture sector is also expected to suffer from water shortages, while drinking water is also expected to be in short supply. Thanks for those scary facts, Adam. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from Pravda. In blowing up the Kokovka Dam, Russia has committed an egregious war crime, as well as the largest man-made ecological disaster in Europe in decades. It must pay the price for this act of eco-terrorism. That's followed up with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. What would Russia gain from cutting off the water supply to Crimea, which it considers its territory? This is unequivocally an act of sabotage carried out by Ukraine, probably to distract from its already faltering counteroffensive. And Narrative C comes from the Atlantic. As much as this is a hot war between Russia and Ukraine, it's also an information war, with both sides disseminating vast amounts of propaganda for their own geopolitical objectives. It's easy to make snap judgments, but serious examination is needed before any conclusions can be reached, including exploring the possibility of a simple structural failure causing this tragic disaster. A simple structural... Yeah, it didn't stand up to the missile. Stupid damn. Right. (laughs) It's faulty. Yeah. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. They have an opinion here that says there's a 4% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Boy, that's a that's a slim chance. That is slimmer than I would expect. I guess a guarantee to Ukraine would be pretty dangerous to give right now because then they're already under attack. So you're basically saying if someone attacks you, we'll retaliate. I guess that's a, that's another way of saying that another country will fully commit to fighting by your side. Is that yeah. what they're... 
I guess so. Yeah. I guess uh, other than the fact that like there's a bunch of countries kind of, yeah, well, you can borrow some stuff. Like when uh, Rocky Balboa asked for a cigarette after that first fight and the guy gives him the cigarette he's smoking, the half used one, and then pulls a new one out and then he keeps smoking that one. That's... <laughs> Uh, that's that's a perfect <laughs> analogy to the Ukraine war and uh, and the other countries involvement. Rocky, <laughs> thank you. Funding is approved for a controversial Atlanta cop training center. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NBC News, the New York Times, the Guardian, and the Hill. After a 14-hour public meeting stretching from Monday into early Tuesday. The Atlanta, Georgia City Council voted 11 to 4 to approve $31 million for the construction of a new Atlanta public safety training center dubbed Cop City by critics. The approval of the 85-acre facility where police, firefighters, and emergency responders would train, and which will cost a total of $90 million, comes after years of opposition from protesters who say it will hurt the environment and be used by police to, quote, practice urban warfare. Alongside the $31 million, the council voted to allocate another $1.2 million of city money per year over 30 years, totaling $36 million. The rest of the $90 million budget will be funded by private donations to the Atlanta Police Foundation, the nonprofit responsible for planning and building the facility. The council included a list of requirements for the facility, such as prohibiting the use of helicopters and explosives as well as requiring police to take training programs on safeguarding free speech, recognizing bias, and avoiding interactions with the public that could escalate to violence. The funding vote, which comes over a year since the facility was approved in September 2021, follows last week's arrests of three organizers accused of fraud who lead the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which has provided bail money and helped find attorneys for arrested protesters. Clashes between police and protesters have become increasingly violent in recent months, with an environmental activist shot and killed by police in January, and dozens arrested on domestic terrorism charges following alleged acts of violence, including the torching of police equipment. Thank you, Scott. I'm going to start off our spins with a progressive narrative provided by Common Dreams. The Atlanta City Council just voted to increase the law enforcement targeting of minorities while simultaneously destroying the water quality of a majority black and brown population. Instead of allocating $60 million toward environmental protection, housing, or education, the city chose to fund what is essentially a resort for police. If the city doesn't think this will lead to more police brutality, it should look at how they've already treated protesters. Cross that with this Democratic narrative from Washington Post. While the city council has listened to and acknowledged the concerns of protesters, the Democrat-led legislature voted yes on this funding for justified reasons. This facility isn't just for cops, though Atlanta certainly needs to better train its law enforcement at a time of racial reckoning. It's also for firefighters and paramedics. Furthermore, the loudest opponents have used not just their rights to speech, but violence to intimidate the men and women in charge of protecting Atlanta and its surrounding neighborhoods. And we're going to wrap up these spins with a Republican narrative provided by the post-millennial. Far-left, anti-police militants have been attacking Atlanta law enforcement nonstop since this facility was first proposed. Just last month, three extremists were caught putting flyers with the identity of one officer in people's mailboxes with the sole intention of harassing him publicly. Not that Atlanta needed any reason to bolster its police department, but this should certainly be the nail in the coffin on that issue. 
my brother and I lived in uh, you know quasi rural Idaho together in an apartment. We had a balcony that kind of overlooked a uh, firefighter training course. It was pretty fun to watch. I mean, those guys were working hard out there. Light stuff on fire and put They're it out. Lighting stuff on fire. We actually got to see them use those axes that they carry around for no reason. Oh, there's a reason. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah that's reason. the reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they got to. got to break stuff. Got to break they things cut over, stuff. Man. Yeah. They, they've got one in, in our city that I've seen. It, it seems like it's just a bunch of sea uh, trains just kind of stacked up and arranged on top of each other. It looks like it could double for a paintball course. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if they want to raise a little money for this cop city, <laughs> you know. They do their training during the week, and on the weekend, they open it as a, an urban assault paintball park. Yep. South Korea and Japan scrambled jets during a China-Russia joint air patrol. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Japan Times, and France 24. South Korea and Japan reportedly had to scramble their fighter jets on Tuesday after four Chinese and four Russian military aircraft entered the South's air defense identification zone unannounced, although they didn't violate either nation's airspace. Beijing's defense ministry suggested the operation with Russia, the sixth since 2019, was part of an annual cooperation plan between the two countries' militaries. The Japanese Ministry of Defense said two PRC-H-6 bombers joined two Russian Tu-95 bombers and flew to the East China Sea. It added that the ministry believes two PRC fighters also took part. In addition, the South Korean military's Joint Chiefs of Staff said eight military airplanes, four each from Beijing and Moscow, entered its air defense identification zone the same day. Hirokazu Matsuno Japan's chief cabinet secretary said Wednesday that flights near Japanese airspace are a, quote, serious concern for national security. The concern was communicated to China and Russia through diplomatic protocols. The South Korean Defense Ministry said it sent a note of protest to the Chinese and Russian embassies in Seoul over military aircraft flying near, quote, sensitive areas close to our airspace. The ministry also asked both countries to take appropriate measures to calm regional tensions. Nippon brings us the pro-establishment narrative. This incident indicates that Sino-Russian military cooperation, which has ramped up in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, poses a serious threat to the rule-based world order, especially to freedom-loving countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Japan and South Korea must bolster security ties with other regional powers, as well as with the U.S. and NATO, to defend the status quo. And then there's an establishment critical narrative provided by Global Times. China and Russia are strengthening their ties, as evidenced by their lawful joint aerial strategic patrol. Both countries are taking a much-needed step toward promoting peace and stability in the region, while the U.S. is saber-rattling over Taiwan, the Korean Peninsula, and the South China Sea to provoke a Ukraine-like crisis in the region. Western hegemony is undermining stability in the Asia-Pacific. And we have a nerd narrative from the forecasting community at Metaculus. They predict there's a 1% chance that Japanese and Chinese armed forces will be involved in a deadly clash before the year 2024. Oh, let's see what we can't do to ramp that up a bit. How about fly Russian and uh, Chinese air bombers over our countries? It is something to be said for, uh, you know... We may have our issues with with Mexico at the border, and we you know we may be choking on Canadian tree smoke as 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 it goes. But 
you know, we got plenty. We can all kind of fly our own planes and no one kind of gives everyone else a hard time, right? Uh, local communities do get upset when I fly my PRC H6 bomber over Fresno. That thing has antique plates. You don't even have to register it. That's fine. I, you know what, though? I would have loved to been a fly on the wall to hear that uh, the concern that was communicated to Russia and China through diplomatic protocols. I would like to hear the diplomacy that took place in that room. <laughs> What the hell are you doing? Diplomatic relations. <laughs> yeah. Strained. Jeez. <laughs> Canada rules an incel attack as terrorism. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CVT News Toronto, CBC, The Star, St. Catherine Standard, and iHeartRadio. On Tuesday, Ontario Superior Court Justice Suhail Akhtar ruled that a 2020 attack on a Toronto massage parlor was an act of terrorism inspired by the online incel movement, marking the first officially designated terror offense of this type. The term incel is short for involuntary celibate and has been described as a motive for violent extremism. The term is often found in online cultures that espouse misogynistic beliefs. While the incel motive ruling doesn't carry a distinct charge, it will play a role in the upcoming sentencing. The anonymous man, whose identity is protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, has pled guilty to two counts of murder and attempted murder. On February 24th, 2020, the then 17-year-old suspect entered the Crown Spa Massage Parlor in North York, Toronto, carrying a 17-inch sword, killing employee Ashley Arzaga by stabbing her 42 times. He also attacked another employee who survived before police found him and a note reading, Long live the incel rebellion. Canada's criminal code defines a terrorist activity as an act committed with the intention of public intimidation in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause. The ruling is also only the second time an offender has been convicted under Section 231 of Canada's criminal code deeming murder to be first degree if committed during terrorist activity. The accused is next set to appear in court on July 18th, with Crown prosecution seeking for the now 20-year-old to be tried as an adult. Scott, thank you for those disturbing facts on that story. We've got a narrative A spin to start off, provided by Foreign Policy. Unfortunately, Canada is extremely familiar with the rise of incel altercations and is even home to the origin of the term. While it's hard to group incels as a single homogenous unit, national security agencies are finally waking up to its threat. Incels are all too aware that they bear the hallmarks of a terrorist group, and Canada is acting to stifle their continued growth. And Narrative B comes from the conversation. While some may argue that the newfound categorization of incel terrorism is positive, the decision sets a dangerous precedent for how the state can define good and bad ideologies in modern society. Incel-related violence is despicable, but the state should reflect on the societal reasons for gender-based violence and attempt to address such issues within the community, rather than creating a problematic anti-terrorism response. Scott, we got a lot to unpack in this story here. You're familiar with the incel movement, are you not? I mean, I, I have heard of it. I, I don't. It's kind of one of those things I hear about reading online, but I wasn't totally aware of what it is. It always seems to be young men yeah. that are not getting dates or getting turned down or getting humiliated sexually some sort. That's at least my take on it. So here we go. So he goes into a massage parlor. 
tries to get a massage, maybe. Perhaps. And they're like, no, you're too young. Or they do take him in and they laugh. Right, right. So he comes back with a 17-inch sword, compensating for something, maybe? The other thing I noticed about this, uh, yes, the answer to your, your question is <laughs> definitely yes. The other thing I'm, I, I noticed is that this incident took place on... February 24th? Took place on February 24th, 2020. So it was almost certainly, well, it was almost certainly one of the last days this spa was open before everything shut down. Like, talk about your, <gasps> oh, uh, your bad quarantine. luck. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I feel pretty certain that this was the last day this particular spa was open before quarantine. Yeah. I don't think they but... bounced back too quick <laughs> no. after this happened. Um, but it, you know, kind of insult to injury or whatever you know it was it would have closed the next day anyway it's oh crazy oh my gosh you're right i didn't even thought of that and then the incel uh the incel uh valhalla was was quarantined this the guy incel valhalla <laughs> <laughs> what is their battle cry i don't know yeah i'm not sure what incel ragnarok is we'll have to think about what that is yeah <laughs> In Florida, a judicial panel recommends that the Parkland shooter judge should be reprimanded. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Insider, Associated Press, and Court TV. On Monday, the Florida Judicial Qualifications Commission determined that Circuit Court Judge Elizabeth Schurer should be publicly reprimanded after finding she violated parts of the Code of Judicial Conduct during the sentencing of the 2018 Parkland school shooter. An investigation claims Schurer engaged in inappropriate behavior, including over-criticizing defense counsel and hugging prosecutors, victims, and family members after the trial's conclusion. The 15-member commission acknowledged that the wide publicity of the case could have, quote, created stress and tension for everyone involved, but it was still the judge's duty to, quote, act always with dignity and respect to promote the judiciary's impartiality. The six-month trial saw Nicholas Cruz receive a life sentence for the murder of 14 students and three staffers at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The jury could have given him the death penalty but failed to agree unanimously. Schurer recently announced plans to retire, although the commission report said that that was not part of its suggested punishment. Thanks for those facts, Adam. The South Florida Sun Sentinel brings us Narrative A. There's a difference between partiality and humanity, and Schur's actions clearly fell under the latter. She showed compassion toward the victims and their families of this heinous crime after the conclusion of an emotional trial, an act that shouldn't be punished. Hopefully this doesn't discourage judges from being sensitive in similar situations moving forward. And Daily Mail has a narrative B on this story. While compassion is important, a judge's duty to impartiality must come first. While well-intentioned, Schurer's actions, including publicly clashing with the defense attorneys, accusing them of being unprofessional, and wrongly accusing an assistant of threatening her family, called into question her bias. This wasn't the only case of her openly showing favoritism related to sentencing. A public reprimand is deserved. Merck is suing the U.S. government over Medicare drug price negotiations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Politico, CNBC, USA Today, and The Wall Street Journal. Drug maker Merkin Company on Tuesday filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., 
claiming the federal government's plan to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices violates the company's First and Fifth Amendment rights. Merck says the law will force it to negotiate drug prices at below market rates, violating the Fifth Amendment requirement that the government pays just compensation for private property obtained for public use. The company's second argument claims that its First Amendment right to free speech will be violated by having to sign agreements saying the prices are fair. The right to negotiate drug prices was included in the Inflation Reduction Act, which became law last year over the objection of pharmaceutical companies. However, negotiated prices won't take effect until 2026. Merck's type 2 diabetes drug, Genuvia, which it made $2.8 billion from in 2022, could potentially be on the list of drugs subject to Medicare price negotiations in 2023. It expects its cancer treatment, Keytruda, and its other diabetes drug, Janimet, will be subject to the program later. Thank you, Scott. A democratic narrative to start off the spins brought to us by Axios. Merck is starting a barrage of lawsuits by greedy drug makers attempting to postpone implementation of the IRA drug pricing provisions before they completely cripple enforcement of the excise taxes that make the provisions work. Luckily, the drug companies don't have a legal leg to stand on because they're not entitled to sell their drugs to the government at any price they want and are free to not participate in Medicare. And the Republican narrative comes from Daily Caller. Merck and other drug companies need to sue not just to prevent the government from extorting them into selling their drugs for less than market value and bankrupting them, but also to prevent the slow-rolling, socialist-style government takeover of the pharmaceutical industry. When the government takes over, innovation dies and leaves people without important new treatments and medicines. I don't think Merck has any fear of bankruptcy. Notice they're not saying that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Other, Other people, people are, are saying, saying that. that. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, yeah. In a recent report, an Instagram algorithm pushes a vast pedophile network. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Verge, Wall Street Journal, Variety, and New York Post. The Wall Street Journal on Wednesday reported that a joint investigation carried out with academics at Stanford University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst found that the algorithms of the meta-owned social media platform Instagram actively promote pedophile networks that commission and sell child sexual abuse content. Stanford's Internet Observatory and UMass Rescue Lab quickly identified large-scale communities promoting criminal sex abuse, which do not publish their content openly, but rather offer to sell, quote, menus of content. The observatory research team also discovered 405 sellers of what they designated as, quote, self-generated child sex material, accounts allegedly run by children themselves, using hashtags associated with underage sex. Data compiled via network mapping software Maltego found that 112 of those accounts collectively had 22,000 followers. Though Meta says it has already restricted the use of thousands of search terms related to child sex abuse, researchers reported that Instagram allowed people to use hashtags including hashtag pedobate and hashtag MNSFW, which means minors not safe for work, to find pedophile rings. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children last year received 31.9 million reports of child pornography mostly from internet companies, up 47% from 2020. Meta accounted for 85% of reports, 
including approximately 5 million via Instagram. The claims that Instagram frequently ignored or rejected reports of child abuse material, even though Meta pointed out that in January alone it took down 490,000 accounts violating its child safety policies and removed 27 pedophile networks over the past two years. Well, thanks, I guess, for those disturbing facts, Adam. We have a narrative A from Business Insider. While Meta has acknowledged that it is a long way to go in combating this issue, we shouldn't forget that it has already taken down two dozen pedophile rings and removed countless pieces of child abuse content. As tackling this issue is its number one priority, this tech leader has also set up a new task force devoted entirely to ridding its platforms of these heinous criminals and their illegal content uploads. And the New York Times has a narrative B. Sexually explicit child abuse content that has run rampant online since the tech boom. And its number one supplier is Meta. Whether it's on search engines or social media platforms, pedophiles can run simple searches to gain easy access to countless child victims. While user privacy is important, tech companies certainly have the tools to target images that can lead to danger without violating the rights of law-abiding counterparts. A lawsuit claims that China spied on Hong Kong activists using TikTok. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Time Magazine, WION News, Al Arabia, and The Guardian. Former ByteDance executive Yin Tao Yu claimed in a wrongful dismissal lawsuit that the Chinese government can obtain user data collected from ByteDance-owned TikTok through a so-called God credential that it used to spy on Hong Kong activists and protesters in 2018. Yu, a former head of engineering at ByteDance in the U.S., also claimed in the court filing, made this week in a San Francisco Superior Court, that protest-related content uploaded by users was flagged and monitored. Yu's lawsuit said that super-user credentials were commonly discussed between employees at various levels of the company, including senior executives, and there was a backdoor to any barrier ByteDance had supposedly installed to protect data from the CCP surveillance. Users, including protesters, supporters, and civil rights activists involved in the 2018 Hong Kong protests, were tracked and identified, with the PRC government allegedly being able to access their network data, SIM card information, and IP addresses. Dismissing Yu's accusations as baseless, ByteDance claimed that these claims were intended to garner media attention. It also said that Yu was only employed by the company for less than one year, working on a now discontinued app called Flipagram. TikTok is facing mounting scrutiny from Western nations with the U.S., U.K., and Canada banning it on government-issued devices. The Biden administration has stated a complete ban is possible unless the platform is sold. Thank you, Scott. We've got an anti-China narrative provided by Fortune. More and more evidence is emerging that TikTok is being used as a vehicle for Beijing's espionage. Pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong who merely sought fair political representation were systematically targeted by the CCP, and it seems that TikTok was a useful weapon in tracking their movements. More legal action against ByteDance must be undertaken. And the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. Though the U.S. media continues to baselessly accuse China of spying, the reality is that the U.S. runs the biggest espionage outfit in the entire world. Even though Washington's massive global surveillance programs have been extensively documented, the U.S. continues to maliciously accuse China of being the main espionage threat 
facing the world today. I want to know more about his discontinued app, Flipagram. I know. I, it's, just, it's not an ideal name. You know, like I can kind of see like, what's the one sentence pitch? What is Flipagram? Tell, hit me with it. Everybody flipping off their friends. You get on there and you got three seconds to just flip your fingers and it's only on there for 24 hours. So nobody can track you. If they get mad, you just you can deny it. I think that's probably exactly exactly what it, what it is. <laughs> and that's why it failed. Yeah, that's why it's failed. Yep. <laughs> The city of New York sues Hyundai and Kia over its easy-to-steal cars. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, ABC News, and CNBC. New York City has filed a lawsuit against automakers Hyundai and Kia for alleged negligence, claiming that they are creating a public nuisance by selling cars that are too easy to steal. In their complaint, the city faults their failure to install anti-theft vehicle immobilizers in their cars between 2011 and 2022. Immobilizers prevent the engine from being started without a key being present and have been the industry standard since the 1990s. The city claims this is responsible for an increase in vehicle theft, crime sprees, reckless driving, and public harm and is joining other major U.S. cities such as Seattle, Milwaukee, and San Diego in taking legal action against the two companies. There has been a 660% increase in the thefts of Kia and Hyundai cars in the first four months of 2023, compared to the same period last year, the city says, with nearly 1,000 reported stolen. A social media trend highlighting the ease of starting Kia and Hyundai cars without a key is believed to be a contributing factor. Last month, the two automakers reached a settlement with consumers over the anti-theft shortcomings that could be valued at $200 million, covering theft-related losses and insurance costs. Kia says the lawsuit is, quote, without merit, and that they are working with the city to help reduce vehicle thefts. Both companies have offered software upgrades to up to 8.3 million cars that lack an immobilizer, with Hyundai adding that it made Immobilizer's standard in 2021. Thanks for that story, Adam. Our final round of narrative spins begins with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. Violent crime in Democrat-run cities, not just car thefts, has been on the rise due to soft-on crime policies. But rather than tackling the issue head-on, they're passing the buck to car makers. Besides, most Kia vehicles in the U.S. have push-button to start ignition systems, which actually makes them harder to steal. Nothing will change in these cities until their prosecutors stop letting criminals off the hook and undermining the police. And CBS News is going to follow that up with a Democratic narrative. While leaders are undoubtedly responsible for handling crime, companies are equally accountable for ensuring their products meet the industry standard. Thanks to the absence of vital anti-theft devices in Kia and Hyundai cars, the vehicles could be started with as little as a screwdriver. Hopefully, financial penalties will force them from finally putting consumers before profit margins. But this failure is a boondoggle Kia and Hyundai won't live down anytime soon. And the Associated Press brings us Narrative C. While Kia and Hyundai are partially to blame for the lack of immobilizers, more attention needs to be directed towards social media platforms and the role they play in performance crime. These viral crime trends spread like wildfire and law enforcement cannot keep up. It's clear theft would not be such a large issue with these vehicles if TikTok and other platforms took more concrete action against criminal activity on their platforms. 
You ever have a car stolen, Adam? If so, what what kind was it? I never had a car stolen, but man, I had quite a few bikes stolen when I was a kid. Yeah. It's a heartbreaker too, man. When you walk out of the store and your bike is just gone. And you're oh like, my gosh, it changes your life more so than a car. It's it's a, it's a over. It's all over. To mess over. with a young mind so much as to lose. Anyway, I'm still in therapy. I'm still in therapy. <laughs> I think you're still recovering. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. Or you can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.